Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University, and I'm with interior designer Amanda Lynn. Thanks so much for coming to the show, Amanda. It's lovely to be here. I haven't actually written on your work, but I've seen some of it published in magazines, and um, it's always quite varied. And you seem to have a uh, you said something really quite charming on one of the tours you attended, one of my tours, mm. and you and we went to see a 70s house, and a lot of people on the tour just didn't get it. They said, oh, and you said, oh, I'm at home. I love it. 70s is where I live. <laughs> why do people have a problem, before we begin about your work, why do people have a problem with the 70s? I think because it was such a move away from what was before, which was quite neat and light colours and people could relate to it. The 70s was all about challenging design. It's, it was, I think, the start of industrial design creeping into our interiors, mm. you know, tubular steel, mm. tubular plastic, using masculine um, fabrics, so the black leather, the mm. teak wood. Mm. It was something that was quite... You know, new. Normally, interiors were more feminine. Mm. This, I think, brought a masculine feel to things. But I love the fact that so much, so much of it has texture, and layering, and there's copper, and there's wood, and there's leather. So these are all natural elements that were brought in. Amanda, do you think it's a bit early? Do you think that period will pick up, or you think it's? Just I good? think there's. I think there are little clues around at the moment that there are definitely people going, you know what, it wasn't so bad. And in fact, there are some amazing elements. And look at the, you know, Tom Dixon's doing copper in a big mm, way. Huge. Black leather is back, um, but it might not be on a sofa. It might be as a cover for a wardrobe. Yeah. We've got teak kitchens, yeah. you know, we've got it all the, the, the handmade tiles and that appreciation for the handmade. Yeah. Um, there's been such a complete explosion of mass-produced So this, what product. I'm hearing is there's plenty of um, people using elements from that period without actually mm. knowing that that started in, exactly. them, in their exactly. 70s. Exactly. We don't all have to have the shaggy <laughs> rank. <laughs> That's probably wrong. not terribly hygienic. <laughs> but absolutely there are great elements that we could draw from it. And certainly I think I'd rather be referencing 70s design than 80s design. <laughs> Amanda, how did you start? You're from South Africa. Yes. You came to Perth. That's correct. And you spent the first few years looking at design for IKEA. That's right. I was really lucky to land a job shortly after we arrived with IKEA. Um, great learning curve. World's biggest furniture company. So, you know, there's lots to learn. Um, and because I was the design manager, I was involved across all kinds of um different aspects of the job so not only just selecting you know products for the Australian market but designing the stores setting up their kitchen it was the first time they'd done a kitchen department um, looking at things like advertising marketing promotions etc so just a really great way of jumping in at the deep end Amanda it's an interesting area buying uh, or purchasing yeah. merchandise that will be suit the Australian yeah. market how difficult is that because we are quite Separate from Europe? Um, we are. I think there's much less of an appreciation that you buy something forever, as there is in Europe. Um, I think we're very much more here about instant purchase to make do for now, mm. as opposed to investing in something that you might even pass on to your children. Um, so there's that. Um, I think there also needs, and, and there is a groundswell of support for local manufacturers mm. and artisans, but still not enough. We still have that whole cultural cringe where we 
you know, we want to have an overseas designer because they're famous, whereas we've got some really talented people here. Who, Why is that? Just insecurity? I, I don't know how... I don't know how it's come about. I think that maybe we're just so used to thinking that if it's someone from overseas, then they are better. But that's not necessarily so. I think we have a great understanding of materials here, of casual lifestyle, about not overworking something, about offering solutions to design issues. You know, And good design doesn't mean bling. Good design means a solution or simplest way of doing something that will enhance your everyday use of it. Um, now, you, you left IKEA, you came mm. to Melbourne, yes, and you, you started your own practice fairly much straight away? Um, I bought a paint company when I came to Melbourne um, and worked in the top end of the market doing colour consulting with boutique brands um, and using colour to help manipulate space, um, but more and more being involved with people in their homes and also in corporate worlds doing that, people would ask for further advice. And so eventually I closed the paint business and just kept the consulting full-time. And now you're really specialising in middle to high-end interiors? Yep, I do. I have a nice mix in my practice. So I do a lot of building renovations. So going in full gut of the property and starting again, rearranging the floor plan, making better traffic flow, improving storage making spaces that pulse at different times of the day so that you don't just get one experience of walking through the house. Mm. Um, and then also do quite a few barristers' chambers, which is lovely and quite a change from my mm. domestic work. Um, and really, you know, lovely clients, um, smart clients who want to be challenged. Um, and it's really a joy. Um, Amanda, you work with a number of key architects mm. in Melbourne. Uh, who, who, who are the the architects you're working with on a regular basis? The architects I work most with um, is uh, um, a group called Rex Roth Manus Man Collective, which is a really Quite impressive a name. <laughs> and um, I know they told me, I asked them about it, and they told me that they chose it because it sounded so impressive. <laughs> and um, none of their names are incorporated in the name of the company, but it yeah. works. Um, I love them because they are totally left of centre but while still having a really strong discipline in architecture. So it's almost like you have to know all the rules to break all the rules. Um, they have a great sense of humour in their interiors, which is something I think we forget. Mm. They have a great sense of personality in their buildings. How does the process start? Do you both meet the client at the same time, or do they start a project and it then bring you in? How does it totally work? totally depends on the project. So sometimes I'll have a client who will come to me and I'll say, technically there's more here than I am you know that I have the technical ability to do or sometimes they'll get a job that is just about doing the space the exterior space and the physical space and then they'll say well you know if we drill down to bathroom design kitchen design finishes etc we've got somebody that we'd like to introduce to the project mm -hmm. um, and it's a great relationship there's nothing that's off the table and there's nothing that's not mad that we can't bring to the table and that doesn't mean that we end up with haphazard you know, unprofessional, amateurish-looking houses by any means. It just means that sometimes those houses have that extra element that you wouldn't get if it was passed from an architect to a designer and there wasn't that interrelation between them. Um, Amanda, you've worked with some interest. You've done some interesting projects. Uh, you did your own home, which yes. was uh, 70s or 80s by the look of it, and then you reworked it. Um, it was an interesting beginning. It was actually originally a trade union office. Um, five meters 
by 17 meters, which is tiny. Um, and we were temporarily staying there whilst looking for a house, but so loved the area in North Melbourne. It's a real little village, close to everything, walk to the city, walk to the markets. And we thought, oh, we could do something with it. Um, and my husband and myself had made this commitment to each other that we would never again live in a house that was built to be a domestic residence. And that, why is that? Well, because therein lies the challenge. A house is set out as a house. A trade union office is not necessarily set out as a house. And so the fun is in the doing. Uh-huh. The joy has been in the living. But, um, you know, to try and carve out light um, in a space like that that only had um, windows to the front and the back because it was part of a group in a terrace, um, and to try and make it feel spacious and to try and make make it go beyond its very gritty in an urban set amongst car mechanics workshop kind of situation and bring greenery into it and lushness and tranquility it was a huge challenge um, so we worked with Rex Rothmanis Man on this particular project as well um, and I think they've done a sterling job um, in carving out space that just didn't exist and um, Amanda you've also gone against the grain because something small is generally considered or oh, well, we have to paint all the walls white and and make it appear as large as possible. You've actually literally painted every wall, almost every wall, Mm. dark Mm. black or Mm. black or matte black, which kind of creates a different aesthetic altogether. But most people think, well, that's just not the way to do it. It's interesting. Our house has um, been open for the Melbourne Open House weekend. And that's probably the question I get asked the most by people who come in. How come you decided to do that when it's such a small space? And I say to them, look around, and I'll explain why. And they totally get it once you've been in it. And the idea is that, firstly, for white to work, it needs to have natural light to bounce off it mm-hmm. so that things look bright and fresh. And in a property that is has terrace-like proportions, where you only have light at the front and back, there isn't that opportunity. And so the white looks grey and miserable, and things just kind of float around in it. So the black was really good because, firstly, it anchored the space. By painting a black, it gave it a sense of drama, which gave it a sense of presence, which made it feel more important and bigger than it actually was. But also, again, because it was such a small space and the space was so defined, the black blurred all those boundaries mm-hmm. between the edges of the room. And you've and also so, got a black or dark navy carpet. Yeah, we've got a black carpet upstairs, a charcoal carpet upstairs, and downstairs we have black rubber sports flooring. And the black is recessive, it falls away. And so what happens is that you notice all the things. You notice the art, the books, the rugs, all the beautiful things. Walls in themselves are not beautiful. You really don't need to draw attention to them. So the darkest color recedes. And what we also did was the whole back wall is glass, and we've got some really limey green, very bright iridescent um, hedges growing outside. Mm-hmm. So you walk in the front door, and all you see is this luminous green outside Mm. because the black falls away and your eye focuses on the brightest color. So it almost forces you to notice what you want people to notice. Um, Amanda, we also uh, did a restoration or an interior for a cafe in in Bank Place called Syracuse. Yes. It's a beautiful, looks like an Art Nouveau building, late Victorian Art Nouveau. Yeah, um, late Victorian, beautiful old banking building um, and one of my favorite projects ever. It's probably been about nearly 10 years since I did it, and I still love walking in there. You open the beautiful heavy drape of the velvet curtain and you step inside, and it's like you've, you're in Prague, you've left Melbourne behind. Um, it just has a sense of its own tranquility in the bustle of the city. Um, it was very much a case of 
taking away, not adding, because it had beautiful finials, pillars. We just added some mirrors, a little bit of panelling on the side to protect the walls from the chairs. Took off, it had stunning old st um, steel candelabra. So we just took off the lampshades and made them almost skeletal. And, mm. you know, add wine, add people, add some big champagne buckets and a beautiful big arrangement of flowers, and you've instantly got something absolutely civilised. Amanda, it's an exquisite interior, very authentic, very kind of almost quite earthy. Mm. A lot of architects would probably go into a space like that, or interior designers mm. as well, and say, look, I want to put my stamp on that and create a me effect. Yes. But that's not the response you took. No, and I think overridingly um, I take pride in the fact that I don't have, other than the fact that I would always use natural materials, and my natural palette is dark rather than light, I would never have a signature look um, that you could point out and go, oh, that's a mm. typical Amanda Lynn interior, because at the end of the day, you're doing it for your client, not for yourself. And what I want people to feel when they walk away from something that I've done is not, oh, wow, it looks great. I want them to say, oh, it feels great. And if you can create that and mood, also, it's very different. And also, I suppose it doesn't feel forced. It actually feels like it's always been there. It should feel like you're not walking into a brand new space. Um, I did a restaurant as well where we created the story, this total fiction, that a couple for two you know best friends that come from Greece in 1940 built this restaurant with all the artisan skills that they had um the kids didn't want to take it over 20 years later they just shut it down and then 20 years later we found it boarded up and opened it up again and there it was and that was mini restaurant in the city mm -hmm. um and we just created this fiction because we wanted it to feel as if it had always been there and we wanted people to walk past and go have I missed this all this time? Was I it always think, here? I think actually ticking ticking in my brain, I actually wrote on that. You did. Oh, years you did. ago. <laughs> Many years ago. Amanda, we're also talking about, you know, every, with all the design shows and home mm. shows and everyone's an expert and particularly in your area, um, interior design, mm. a lot of people think they can do it themselves. Yep. And Look, it must be very challenging when you present a brief to a client mm. and then rather than dealing with the client, mm. you actually then start dealing with the client and their book club. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an interesting idea. You must have heard me speak before about the book club factor, which is the dreaded factor Tell that comes about into it, every hilarious. presentation. Well, I think whilst design shows are great in terms of getting the idea out there that we can do more with our homes than just accept them as they are and that they can be improved, what a lot of the time they fail to show, because obviously it all needs to be contained to an hour's worth of television, is the planning, um, the sourcing, the interviewing of trades, the getting all the right combinations together, the project management, the permits, all the things that need to fall in place. And also having been around long enough to know in this situation, this could go wrong and having a plan B immediately to back it up in case it does. Um, also, interior design is not about instant showroom look. It's got mm. all the bling and all the mm. big ticket items in it. It's an, a good space. is an evolving space. I don't think there should be an instant. I don't think you should hand over to a client and it's all done. I think they should still be looking for the odd piece. Their personality mm. should come into it. If they love riding horses, there should be something to show that in their well, house. I think that seems to be a general trend if I'm not wrong, yeah. that people are actually wanting things that reflect them rather than, 
you know, these yeah. instant looks. Yeah, that and are very thank God for that because we're getting so many anonymous houses that anybody could live there. Um, but getting back to your book club factor. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I digressed as well. So you'll do a scheme, you'll, you'll think of all the things that need to be considered, the existing architecture, the aspect of the house, the issues that need to be addressed, who lives there, what time of the day they live there, all these kind of things. Look at their budget, looking at, look at what they like, what they've told you they don't like, and put that all together in a solid brief for them. And they love it when you present it and then they take it away. And then the next day you'll get a phone call and you'll say, oh, there's a bit of a problem. And I'll say, what's wrong? Oh, well, I took it to the book club last <laughs> night. <laughs> and I showed it to the girls. And, you know, my f- one friend who's a vet doesn't like yellow. And my other friend who's an accountant says she doesn't like the way the sofas are together. And, you know, and so it goes. And you think, well, there's a reason why they are professional interior designers. And I think that is also a note where you do need to be careful because there are a lot of people who would call themselves interior designers and do do not have the qualifications that they know to bash out it, you know, How a supporting you, uh, wall or look at an electrical plan, deal with the trades. And interior design is not all about, in fact, very a small percentage of it is about, you know, the pretty stuff. Mm. Most of the stuff is about the tough Behind unsexy, the behind the scenes, down in the sewer, looking at where the pipe has burst kind of stuff. Amanda, how do you handle the book club when you get this tyra- <laughs> this overwhelming response? Oh, it's <laughs> look, <laughs> I think over the years you get, you know, as you get more work and as more word of mouth spreads about your work and like-minded clients refer like-minded clients, you get a little bit more confident in yourself to be able to say, look, this is why this will all work. That's my presentation of it. This is how I would approach it. If that doesn't ring true with you, then you need to interview another interior designer because it is a very intimate relationship. You know, you're getting into their wardrobe and saying, how many drawers of undies do you need? You know, how many people do you entertain at a time? How big does your fridge need to be? Do you like to bath or do you like to shower? It's very personal. It's very personal. Do you like to have your family around for meals or would you rather not see your family around for meals? So... You, you're in their space, you're there at 6.30 or 7 in the morning when they're still getting out of bed, you know, you're there with the tradesmen, you're seeing them at their worst and at their stressed, at their most stressed um, because it's expensive sometimes, you know, what they're doing, they're putting a lot of money into it, um, it's something that they haven't dealt with before, it's noisy, it's messy, it's all those really unglamorous things that people don't think about when it comes to design. Um, and so you need to have a very trusting relationship with your designer. Um, Amanda, if someone's you know, really strong-willed and, mm. and, and obviously are going down a path that you think it will be problematic, mm. I mean, at the end of the day, if they go down that path, mm. you, I suppose, have to let them go and then try and pick up the pieces or you just walk away? Um, I think over time you gain the confidence to know that it's not going to be a successful outcome for either of you. And I think it comes down to the client's motive. So I'm all about strong clients. I love clients who have a personality and want to bring something to it and do the research. Um, but at the end of the day, that they understand that the buck stops with me. Um, I have only once walked away from a client, and that's because her motivation was so wrong. Um, and I, you do a brief with a client, and you, you know, especially like a kitchen design. What, what how do you like to cook? Do you fry? Do you grill? Do you, you know, all these things you have to take into account. And we went through it all and I designed the kitchen, returned the design to her and she said, oh, you left up the steamer, the electric steamer. And I said, but we went through that and you said you never steam vegetables. And at that time, (laughs) steamers had just come on the market. Mm. And she said, no, I don't steam vegetables, but my sister-in-law has just built a kitchen and the steamer wasn't out then and she hasn't got one. 
So mm. I will have one and she won't. And I thought, <sighs> you know what, we just, this is not going to be a happy marriage. And I said to her, look, I think maybe I'm not the right person mm. for you. Um, and let me recommend some other people who might be more appropriate. Amanda, it is actually quite difficult, though, leaving a client midway. I mean, that's mm. quite rare mm. because it's other people don't want to take on the job either. Mm. That's also yeah, the and, problem. And, and, and you're very right. You, you have to stop it at the beginning because once you're in, you are committed and you do owe them that commitment. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't want to pick up somebody else's work and I'm sure nobody else would want mm. to pick up mine. So you have to be quite clear right up front um, whether it's going to work or not. Um, in fairness to both of you. There's... I think there's still um, a problem generally, I don't know if it's worldwide, but particularly in Australia, that there is that uh, problem with designer and decorator. Mm. People think they're the same, but they're not. I'm so pleased you brought that up. (laughs) Well, it's just an issue that continually uh, raises. And you would think, even though interior design is a relatively new industry Mm. or new career Mm. in Australia, Mm. it's been going for decades. Mm. I mean, people like Marion Hall Best were... Out there in the yep. 60s yep. and people probably before then. Um, yep. Why is it that we're still talking about it in 2014? Um, I think part of the issue is that here it may not be seen really as a profession. I think it, you know, in in America, certainly in most parts of Europe, um, you go to school, you study, you get a qualification, you belong to a professional affiliation um, and you go ahead and do your work. Over here, you can study and you can belong to a professional affiliation, but anybody can call themselves an interior designer. And you will often, and this is going to come out sounding more awful than it should, but you'll often get somebody who they build a house and the wife doesn't work because she's looking after kids, so she has the time to source everything. She'll put it all together and it'll look great. And her friends will compliment her and she'll think, oh, well, I could be an interior designer. I've got good taste. I've got good taste. And, And having good taste... And being an interior designer are two very different things. Um, So an interior designer should be able to do a building renovation, should be able to, as I said before, look at electrical plans, knock out, deal with trades, um, know when you need to amp up um, the electrical supply to the house, for example, the power phases, um, know when you can hang a 20-kilogram chandelier from the ceiling or not. Um, So there's a lot of technical building boring bits which I find the exciting yeah. bits, um, that you need to know. Of course, you can do the layout. Of course, you can choose furniture, fabrics. art, fabrics, etc. You can do all of those things, but you need to have that extra element. Whereas an interior decorator generally sticks to soft furnishings, curtain selection, bedding, mm. cushions, decorative elements, etc. Mm. Yeah. And you won't be electrocuted by sitting on the wrong chair. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, where do you think we're going in design? If you were, if you had a crystal ball on, yeah. on this table, where do you think we're going? I'm always interested in that because I think I think design is following architecture and as it should, um, and I think all of them are always caught up in what's happening in the world because they are so reflective of how we, you know, things that happen in the world affect our psyche and how we think affects how we live. Um, I think very much there is. A move away in certainly in the design circles that I live with and talk with um, about being modest in your aspirations for your house. The big bling show off mm. house is really something that we're starting to cringe about. Mm. Um, we're also looking at the future about heating houses, cooling houses, maintaining houses, and the expense in terms of man hours and money 
to do that. Um, I think we're learning to embrace our neighborhood and use what we've got, you know, move near a park. You don't have to have a big garden, so you don't have to maintain the garden. Um, move amongst like-minded people so your kids can all go out and play in the driveway. Return to that kind of communal living. Um, and when you read magazines like Wallpaper or Monocle, you know, who really champion um, that return to feeling good. And feeling good in your home means part of being part of a neighborhood and part mm -hmm. of a community. And so our local grocer, no longer the big supermarket, you know, our local butcher, having a high street, all those elements mm -hmm. that create a village, I think we're very much returning to that sense of being rather than being in a big high rise and not having any mm. interface at street level. Mm. Yeah, look, I'm always concerned with the number of high rise buildings that are going up. Mm. And having lived in an apartment and now in a house, I'd much rather live in a house mm. with a garden. And, you know, I think there's something quite lovely about being connected to a community. Absolutely. When you live vertically, there is no opportunity for interface. You're in your elevator and you're out the building. Um, when you live on the street, you, you know, you bump your neighbor taking out the rubbish yeah. or the kids come knocking on the door looking, you know, unless, unless people in the high rise, unless the designers or architects mm. have developed a community mm. environment within mm. that high rise. Yeah. And a lot of them are trying. Some of them succeed. Some yeah. of them don't. Yeah. And, you know, I think just putting in a, a communal swimming pool in a media room mm. doesn't make a community. No, absolutely. Um, and but it's it's a difficult thing to get right because you do want to put people where there are amenities and so high rise is the obvious solution um but it would be better i think to have a few high rises or few medium rises if we can get to medium rise and connect them with communal spaces between them mm. um rather than having just towers. The, the the towers that you know take away our light take away a lot of the towers don't have any interface at street level and that's a real bugbear of mine uh, they shut people off you know who are walking past you don't have any interaction with what's going on inside the building um, so all those little things that we can chip away at and I, the example that I love the most is when you go to Manhattan and it's such a teeming city and it's so chaotic and that's what's so wonderful about it and yes there are all these high-rises but the good city fathers have really taken it upon themselves to humanize Manhattan. And so you'll turn a corner in the middle of 42nd Street with all the neon and everything around. And they've just put chairs on the pavement with huge pot plants for a dozen people. And people are sitting and reading or meeting mm. somebody. And it's just, it gives a human scale. Mm. And it's so softening and so humanizing. It's just completely delightful. I think that's the other thing that's interesting about your area of work. It's not just looking at interior design. I mean, really, I would have thought, you know, I think it's important for a good designer to look at the broader picture, which is, you know, how we live. Yep, yep. And, and, and a good and well-designed house should enhance your daily life. I know that sounds like a huge lofty aspiration, but it really is true. If you don't have to waste 15 minutes looking for everything in the morning, you know, if you walk in after a day's work and there's somewhere to put your keys and to charge your phone and put your handbag that it's not lying on the floor and you can find what you're looking for and, you know, there's good light to do your makeup and there's somewhere to curl up and read a book with a good lamp over it and uh, all those little things that, you know, we so, when we build houses, people say, you know, I want four bedrooms and two bathrooms and a laundry and, and a spare bedroom and a study. And you think you don't need all that space. You need a place to study. You need a, somewhere to put a guest. It doesn't have to be its own whole separate could space. could be a study slash guest bedroom. Of course it could be. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to work hard, especially as, you know, 
the property becomes more expensive, we're all downsizing, we're all looking at much, much smaller footprints. I think we really need to challenge how we deal with space and how we find space where there isn't space. Amanda, look, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Um, I've learned a lot, I've, um, but I've really enjoyed seeing some of the projects that um, you've done over the years. And uh, thank you so much for being uh, with me uh, on Talking Design. Thanks, Stephen. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University. Thanks so much for listening.